Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, last episode, we explored what religious diversity and pluralism looks like in our own backyard here in Montgomery County, Maryland. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that show with Robert P. Jones and Ambarine Khan, if you haven't already given it a listen. But today we're going to go a bit further afield to look at building interfaith and intersectional cooperation in rural parts of the country. Joining me today is Taniza Islam, Executive Director of South Dakota Voices for Peace and South Dakota Voices for Justice. Taniza is an immigration and human rights lawyer who has spent the last decade in South Dakota advocating for vulnerable populations and most recently helping share vital public health information during the pandemic. Also with me today is Leo WT, a queer non-binary Christian activist who's creating space online and in their hair salon to engage neighbors in a pluralistic vision for their community based in the small town of Olean, New York. Here's my conversation with Leo and Tanisa. You know, I like to hear first about my, my guest life stories, how they um, have come to their beliefs and their practices, to their identities. Um, so, Tanisa, can you tell us a little bit how you would describe your identity as, as a Muslim and, and how it presents itself in your, in your life today? I'm born and raised in Michigan, mid-Michigan. I grew up in a, a city called Bay City. And I never realized what I had until I left it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I really consider uh, the Tri-City area Muslim community to be one of the most progressive Muslim communities I have ever experienced. Mm -hmm. And of course, I grew up there, so I didn't know any better until I went to college and I went to grad school and started working and went out to different communities. You know, I grew up in a community uh, which was founded by Nation of Islam Muslims hmm. who then converted to Sunni Islam. So we went from like Baptist to nation to Sunni Islam. Um, when I grew up, we had maybe, you know, 10 African-American Muslim families that regularly went to the masjid. And then we were starting to have an influx of immigrant physicians. So my dad, um, it, you know, immigrated with my mom from Bangladesh. He is, he is now a retired physician, but that community was starting to form when I was growing up there. We had women leaders um, in our mosque space from the beginning. Um, we were a very integrated community. Unfortunately, what I am experiencing here in Sioux Falls and across the country really is that masjid spaces are really either um, broken into so socioeconomic class or by race and socioeconomic class, if you will. And we didn't, I didn't have that when growing up. So I didn't know you could have more than one mosque if there were enough Muslims to go to the mosque, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I took those values. I mean, we were, um, I'm going to date myself, but I mean, I was growing up in the 80s, right? So we were, I was in the space, led Muslim women leaders, fully integrated in terms of there was no different race-based mosques in our community. Um, and we were civically engaged. We volunteered as a community. I mean, these might not think be seen as 
you know, innovative in any way, but we have so many communities that are not civically engaged when it comes to faith, right? So that's what I grew up with, and I carry that on with me. So my faith is not only, you know, the five pillars and the tenets and the practices that we aspire to reach every day, um, but it's also about action and community work and being civically engaged. So was there a major experience in your life that you think was sort of fundamental to shaping your your beliefs or your worldview today? Gosh, there's been so many highlights throughout the last several decades, right? Um, I think a pinnacle moment for me was when I did my study abroad program in college. So I attended Albion College in Albion, Michigan. Um, and traveled with a group of other liberal arts college students and professors to um, Palestine and Israel Mm. in 1998, um, really going to seek understanding and came out with a very um, stark understanding of human rights. Um, It's just visually apparent there, right? Um, And got really involved um, with some uh, human rights uh, Palestinian organizations when I was there. Uh, brought that back with me and started working in, uh, on advocacy issues in a meat processing plant, actually, in wow. Albion, Michigan. Um, and that's exactly the work that I'm doing today. So yeah. when I look at my trajectory, you know, like how this all started, um, obviously the the tragedy of September 11th heavily influenced what I believe my role was in my community specifically. Mm. It prompted me to go to law school sooner than later. Mm. Um, and out of law school, I mean, I landed my dream jobs. I worked as a complaint investigator for the city of Minneapolis, and I was the first civil rights director for the Council on American Islamic Relations Minnesota mm. chapter. Mm-hmm. So just kind of fusing all of you know my passions, my skills, set um, with the work that needed to be done. And then we landed here in Sioux Falls in 2012. And after the election cycle of 2016, um, I knew I was going to have to kind of put that advocacy back hat back on as I had started my immigration law practice and was really getting to know the community in a different way. Wow. Denise is living the dream and and doing the work. So thank you for, for <laughs> <laughs> thank you for for your tireless efforts. Thank you, um, uh, Leo. Turning to you, so you identify as a queer, non-binary, post-evangelical Christian, and I think it's helpful to hear how you define those terms for yourself. Uh, so can you share what you mean when you describe yourself that way? Absolutely. Yeah. For me, I grew up in conservative Christendom, um, and that's been a title that I I really embraced when I was younger. I always understood myself to be a person who was, you know, supposed to be uh, in ministry, right? And for what mm. the, the context for me there was being in a pastoral role. I grew up in a family of pastors with a, you know, a bunch of missionary relatives and all of this stuff. So that was kind of my whole context. And when I say like I was steeped in it, I mean, I was double fisting the Kool-Aid because not only did I believe it, but I was I believed it enough to be passionately acting on it. Mm -hmm. And so part of my reclamation of my faith tradition has been reconciling what I've come to know with what I was taught. when I was between my junior and senior year of pastoral ministry studies, I realized that I was, I, at the time I identified as lesbian. Um, so, so there's, 
it's not a great time to come out as a lesbian between your junior and senior year of mm. pastoral ministry college at a conservative evangelical college. Just not a Seems not like a, a great lot. time. <laughs> um, but I think for me, that was the beginning of some of the best things that I've come to realize about the world. Um, during that time period, in that specific time period, I was coming out as queer, and I also went to, on a trip to Barcelona with uh, for like a winter study abroad with some classmates and the dean of my uh, my school. We went to an Arabic speaking Christian church, right? Mm -hmm. And I found myself sitting in the pews, and I felt like deeply deeply uncomfortable at that point. And I was trying, I had like, I, I would always take my journal with me to religious like functions so that I could like write down what I was thinking. And I, so I sort of started to investigate this. Why do I feel uncomfortable in this moment? And I realized that I had only ever heard the Arabic language on the news in connection with terrorism. And for me, that was that. And then coming out as queer were kind of the beginning of my realization of my worldview has to change. I also learned right in that time period that I was in fact innately racist because I was born in a position mm -hmm. of privilege in a racist society. And so for me, all of these things coalesced in my process of what, what I've come to now know as deconstruction. That's apparently a term that's trending within evangelical uh, evangelicalism and Christendom. And I think that's the beginning of what started to make me realize like, what do I really believe? What does that really mean for my life? And how do we go forward from here? And for me, that was kind of the beginning of my own healing from my religious past, my reckoning with the systems that I had been complicit in, and my desire to actively be different. Uh, for a while, I didn't want to claim Christendom anymore, but I've come to the realization that someone has to go out and stop their, you know, uh, racist drunk grandpa from just harming the world. And that's how I feel with Christendom. Um, I feel like it's my responsibility to pump the brakes or at least challenge this sort of um, hetero uh, white patriarchal narrative that's coming from Christendom. Um, because love it or hate it, I have as much claim to that faith system as as any as anyone else does. So sometimes I say I'm reluctantly Christian, and when people ask me why are you reluctant, I'm like, have you met other Christians? Like it should seem pretty obvious, you know. But that kind of spurred me on into the mindset I have now. So yeah, and and we'll we'll get into. I re I really want to hear how that process has been going with you as as you organize in in upstate New York. Um, and I'll also share that. So this conversation really came about um, in part through the magic of the Internet. Uh, so for, first, I'll cop to the fact that I was uh, Googling interfaith ish, as I do sometimes to see who's found the show and, and where it's ended up. And I came across this little video that uh, you did that where you referenced one of the episodes and what you'd learned from it and how you were encouraging folks to. Um, be bold and intentional in their interfaith engagement um, yeah. and stepping outside of their comfort zone. So I thought that was really cool to find out about. Um, and then more recently for for a totally different project, <laughs> I was randomly watching um, this video uh, by what, uh, what's his name? Chowder or Crowder or some some reactionary oh. YouTuber who was <laughs> using a, a TikTok video that uh, you made Yep. Um, to basically have like the YouTube equivalent of like a locker room. Well, I'm, I'm not going to use an unkind term, but it, let's just say a gossip session between the yep. fellows. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, and I said, hey, I know who that person is that they're talking about <laughs> on TikTok. Um, and and what you were saying, I thought was much more interesting than what their take was. So I said, you know what, I'm going to reach out to Leo um, because they seem like they've got some interesting perspectives to share. And here you are. So I'm I'm glad that you're here. Yeah, um, but one of the things that you were talking about was your read of the non-binary nature of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I thought in brief, um, uh, if, uh, if you, you know, share a little bit about that, that perspective. Absolutely. One of the things that I've come to realize, like I'm a student of evangelical theology by virtue of my undergraduate degree, which is in pastoral ministry and Bible, just straight Bible, like not even anything practical, just Bible, you know. Uh-huh. Um, one book on the syllabus just one yeah just one um and so i i'm a student of evangelical theology but that's not where i live these days i live in a more progressive um space and so i've come to an understanding of christianity that's heavily influenced by queer theory and queer theology that's what i'm currently aspiring to to do my phd work in is the idea of queer theology Queer theology not necessarily meaning anything to do with orientation, but more so to do with the dissolution of artificial binaries, right? Because I believe that there are man-made binaries that are put in place to keep us separate. And if you look at the system, the psychology behind systems of power, they function on division and separation. And so what I was saying with the non-binary Jesus is, first of all, if you subscribe to the idea of immaculate conception, which I'm not claiming any um, any hold to that myself. But if you subscribe to the idea of immaculate conception, you have to also subscribe to the fact that Jesus would not have had a male chromosome. So Jesus would have had to be non-binary, um, on, however that played out. And non-binary, when I'm using it, I'm not using it as a um, as an identity category, I'm more of so using it as a descriptor, right? Mm. Um, because that could have meant anything. But I truly believe that faith in general was meant to be non-binary uh if you look at the if you look at the torah the bible and the quran which i was literally just reading all three last night for my interfaith course um there is more than one intersection where all three of those books point to the dissolution of binaries between faith traditions and not in a way that we're colorblind but in a way that we recognize our differences but see ourselves all moving in a similar stream mm-hmm. and i think that's what i wanted to hit on and you know nothing shakes christians to the core like telling them they're they're earthly uh, manifestation of their deity is queer. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, if we, yeah, if we're if we're thinking of the divine as as the one, you know, I mm-hmm. that that disrupts any idea of a binary. I think by definition. So that exactly. Was, anyway, very very interesting to um, to engage with that, and I think I I I've appreciated um, learning uh, new perspectives and new influences from just watching some of the media content that you've produced. Well, thank you. So on our last episode, as I said at the beginning of the show, we were talking about uh, how Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, where I live, is the third most religiously diverse county in the United States behind um, King and Queens County in in New York City, um, which is not terribly surprising because Washington, D.C. is is right here on the border and is obviously a huge cosmopolitan international city. Um, And... In contrast to that, Leo, you're in upstate New York. Denisa, you're in uh, South Dakota. So both (laughs) of you are working in much more rural populations. And I really want to dive into how this informs and influences 
the interfaith coalition and community building work uh, that you're doing. So, um, Leo, can you share a little bit about about some of the challenges and opportunities to build pluralism in your neck of the woods? Absolutely. I mean, we're a town of 13,000 people, you know, tipping my hat, uh, like, and exposing myself a little bit. I love demographic data. And so I have just an inordinate a amount. A nerd to the data. core. A nerd to the core. Um, because I think it. I'm a social worker at heart, right? Uh, once the church disavowed me, I went into social work because I realized I could employ my practicalities there. So looking at the data, being a, a person who's looking at it from a social social work mindset, you know, we have 13,000 people. We are roughly 95% Caucasian here, and we're largely Christian. But we do have a mosque in our town, and uh, we did have a synagogue up until a few years ago, so they, did, they couldn't sustain the building cost. So my focus is here in my town is how do I simultaneously balance in one hand not taking the microphone from voices that need to be heard because even though I'm not a male, uh, I'm perceived as a male a lot of times. And because my partner is female, I'm perceived as heterosexual really until I start talking or wearing like rainbow things around. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to balance this tension of being perceived as a white male, but also realizing it's not entirely safe for people who look different um, or believe different in my area to speak up. And so for mm -hmm. me, the tension that I'm navigating in my town is how do I not take the microphone from someone who needs it, but how do I stand up and hold space to ensure that someone feels comfortable to grab the mic when they do need it. Because I don't want to talk over anybody else's perspective, but you know, as of this past week, there was a local pastor in town who was in fact the middle school principal. And he got up and in a live sermon broadcast that Muslims were uh, outside of the government of God also gay people, also Democrats, like it was a really interesting tirade, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling this tension, right? So how do I hold space um, for the Muslim community in my town of whom I have several really good friends, um, but how do I not talk over them? And at this point we're working out that tension, but I think that's part of the challenge of building pluralism in a society that is a little bit more, um, you know, sort of uh, monolithic, right? Where I live, mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Tanisa, what about for you? What what does it look like on the ground in, in the areas that you're working in South Dakota? Yeah, this is really interesting, right? Because I think um, being a Muslim in a dominantly Christian environment, my everyday is interfaith, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I am known as the only Muslim immigration attorney in our state, um, oh, wow. you know, and doing the type of advocacy work and the organization that we've built uh, around advocacy and civic engagement. Um, I'm very known in the community for being that Muslim voice, right? And I think for me specifically, I have to always delineate between I am an American Muslim activist, right? I am not a theologian. Like I couldn't tell you anything that Leo just shared, I wouldn't be able to share from the Islamic perspective. And I think that's really critical for communities to understand, mm -hmm. right? Just because one Muslim is the voice and stands up doesn't mean that they're on par with priests and clergy who know theology, right? Mm -hmm. It's assumed like in these interface settings that I see, the representatives of the Muslim community are great people, but they're 
blue collar workers or physicians at the hospital, right? Mm. They may be great Muslims, but I don't know how much they actually know about theology to be able to have a conversation that's being had on the same level, right? It would be a lot to be an immigration attorney, an ED, <laughs> and a sheikha at the same time. Maybe. Right? I mean, I thought about I thought about another degree, but the, yeah. school, the school loans are weighing me down already. So. You got a wallpaper that living room, right? Yeah, yeah if, but, you keep, if you keep going to school, like they, there's a certain point where they can't collect money from you, right? <laughs> <laughs> lifelong student status. Yeah, I hope that's that's in the um, student repayment program, right. <laughs> um, student loan repayment program. But similarly, you know, to Leo, I live in a, a, the largest city in the state, which is 190,000 people, um, which is also the most diverse ethnically. So I believe we're at 88% Caucasian. Um, uh, our next group are Native Americans, and then two percent like Hispanic, and like point five percent Asian, right? Mm. According to census data. Um, but the interesting thing is, I mean, there's there's such a spectrum of Christianity that is practiced here, right? Mm -hmm. um, and being the only Muslim in my Christian Catholic grade school and Lutheran high school, you know, I have a very keen understanding of those differences, which I think sometimes people who are not Christian or maybe Christians themselves don't understand, right? Yeah. The delineation between the different sects and different yeah. practices. So our largest, I mean, our strongest ally in our work through advocacy and action is actually the Evangelical Lutheran Church, um, the mm -hmm. South Dakota Synod here. Mm -hmm. And it's been just an amazing partnership because we are not talking about the theology. And when I've done interfaith work in the past, I kind of had a self-reckoning too in 2016, right? Um, and I was thinking about, you know, my entire life has primarily been about building bridges, right? Mm -hmm. who, are, who am I? You know, what does a Muslim believe? Why don't I wear hijab? Why do women wear hijab? Like all of those questions are the same questions that mm -hmm. I've been answering and trying to answer since I was presenting in my social studies class in high school, right? Mm -hmm. But there came a moment where it, it was like, okay, I'm kind of done, you know, teaching you about Islam. Like now we need to act together. Like we right. don't have time to learn about each other anymore. Like yeah. we can maybe do that separately, but we have some bills and resolutions that are um, trying to claim that Islam is a terroristic religion, yeah. right? We have these speakers, you have your local pastor, but, you know, understanding that the Islamophobic network is actually a thing, mm -hmm. right? It is an industry um, that millions of dollars have been pumped into and yep. speakers go on their tours and they come to rural America because this is fertile ground for yep. Islamophobia. I yep. mean, Leo, I really appreciate you being so vulnerable and saying, you know, the only time I heard Arabic was associated with terrorism in the news. So imagine if you've never seen a Muslim in your community ever, which is mm -hmm. highly probable in this entire state, mm -hmm. right? Um, and now you're seeing the news is telling you about Muslims. You're getting your information there. Now you're going to church and your pastor's telling you the same thing. Like mm -hmm. you have no reason. And now you go to the book tour that came to your small town. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, it's an Islamophobic national speaker. 
Mm -hmm. right? So it's really interesting to think about the work that we've done and we've defeated 84% of those bills from 2017 to 19 and how we've been able to do that work is just showing up and saying, hey, we're here and like, we're, you know, I hate to say it that I have to prove I'm just like you, but we do that now through action instead of having to say that. So I'm I'm really curious how it is that you um you know you said you're a transplant to South Dakota how it is that you ended up there uh, to and and how you started working in your law practice and advocacy work in that context and you know tell us a little bit about about how um, South Dakota Voices for Peace got started. Absolutely. Um, I moved here and the story usually is because your spouse got a job, so you moved with them. So my husband got a job here and so we moved. Um, I was doing full on 100% advocacy work when I was in Minneapolis, St. Paul, where I went to law school, where I got my first jobs, right? So I took that hat off after uh, we had our first son and then moved here. It was just the timing was right, right, to um, concentrate on a new community and figure out what what I was going to do next. Um, And my doors really opened up through uh, the Bush Foundation, which is located in St. Paul, Minnesota. But they serve this region, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. And they provide a program called a fellowship program where they fund individuals who have innovative solutions to age-old problems, right? So when I came here, I'm an attorney, right? I did more civil rights, anti-discrimination work when I was in the Twin Cities. But when I moved here, I recognized right away the severe lack of legal services um, for all communities, not just immigrant communities, but all. And we rank, South Dakota ranks in the bottom quarter of the country in terms of access to free legal civil services. So Mm. I built my immigration practice to be a hands-on, you know, evaluative way of seeing what does the community really need. Um, And then I was funded through our state bar foundation to do a pilot project. Um, After that didn't go through because we just don't have enough graduates in South Dakota from law school who wanted to start a practice and do poverty law. Um, I went back to practice. And like I said, the election cycle of 2016 happened, right? And it was a reawakening for me in terms of being really vigilant and making sure that the Muslim community specifically and immigrant and refugees in general, undocumented people, all the people I serve in the communities I'm a part of, understood their rights, not be scared by the rhetoric that was going on, and then just trying to anticipate what this would mean for our community, right? I mean, we saw the height of Islamophobia as far as we've been tracking it in 2017, right? So not only did we have, you know, 14 bills and resolutions from 17 to 19, we also had 36 um, national speakers on the Islamophobic circuit who came Mm. through South Dakota, right? Mm. So we were at our height then. And so we knew after we were done lobbying in our state capital after 2017, we knew we needed to do more. Um, And for the first time, legislators said, we've never seen so many refugees in our state capital. And that was really powerful for them to be their own voice, right? Our allies are great, but you know, they miss the mark most of the time and they will negotiate on things that we will not. Right. And so being, being present and being 
able to negotiate at that table and, you know, on amendments or whatever that came up on those bills was really crucial. And the rest is kind of history. You know, we really just gained traction um, in building more civic engagement opportunities for new American, undocumented, uh, Muslim communities in particular. And then I folded in my legal practice um, into Voices for Peace because we have an astronomical number of unaccompanied minors from Central America that are living here in South Dakota. I mean, in relation to the other North Dakota and like Montana, Idaho, we have a lot of unaccompanied minors here. And so then we started just doing that work and then COVID hit. Right. And then we knew um, with the CARES Act discussions that undocumented people wouldn't have access to care money, that mixed status families wouldn't. So we started an emergency relief fund for immigrants in South Dakota. Um, so we're just strategically in the right place at the right time with all of the skill sets it takes to be able to anticipate what's going to happen next. Um, and it, so- seems like, it seems like this speaks to the importance of seeing intersectionality in the work that you're doing, that these things are are not siloed issues, but they actually are overlapping and that the coalitions that you're building, whether it's um, between Christians and Muslims or between, um, uh, you know, I- indigenous communities and immigrant communities, um, undocumented folks, all of this advocacy work on public health and, and immigration, all of it seems to be really deeply connected in the work that you're doing. Absolutely. I mean, there's not enough of us in each category to do it on our own, right? And that's really been our model is we must be intersectional. We don't have an option in a state like South Dakota. Um, You know, and if I was doing a slideshow presentation, I would show you a slide from the Institute of Social Policy and Understanding. They have a really incredible map of issue-based intersectionality, really identifying um, Republican-led states, right, and how they vote on LGBTQ plus issues, to women's rights, to immigration, to voting rights. Like, we're all in it together, right? So when we have these discussions, I mean, I was point blank. I was told by some Muslim community leaders here specifically, you know, we really like your work, but you really shouldn't, you know, align with LGBTQ communities. That's not what our religion believes. And I said, you know what? I'm a human rights, civil rights activist Mm -hmm. and a lawyer. I will represent whoever's rights are infringed Mm -hmm. and we must start working together. Otherwise, you know, will be trampled on. And so like that tension, you know, is also a part of the work that we do um, to come out as, um, you know, someone who's Muslim. Our organization is not Muslim, right? Like we are not affiliated with any faith, Mm -hmm. but to come out as um, prominent voices and showing how we're doing intersectional work has honestly brought along um, people who were looking for that space Right. Whether it be I say my like my biggest friend circle are like the 60 plus year old hippies. Right. Like that want to do this work and understand the need for social justice, even in communities like Sioux Falls or anywhere in South Dakota. But bringing along that that group of people along with these young new Americans. Right. Who see the need to be civically engaged and be be active and participate in decision-making in our community that impacts their everyday lives. 
Beautiful. Well, you know, Leo, your days are spent perhaps in a in a in a somewhat different setting. You're an, you're an activist uh, by night, but a stylist and salon owner. Am I right? By by day. Yeah. Um, so you you certainly have your ear to uh, <laughs> to to the lips of uh, of the community there, and probably hear a lot of the hot goss that's that's coming through uh, the salon. I'm I'm curious what you hear in your community and how does that contribute to to building um, intercultural interfaith intersectional um, uh, cooperation. Well, so I made the switch from the nonprofit world into the hair world because I realized I had kind of hit an earning cap, if you will, uh, without getting my MSW, which I wasn't sold on, right? Because it just wasn't quite right. You know, so I, I've been accepted to grad school four times and gone once. So, uh, so I, so I love those applications, a lot of applications. Yeah. Uh, and so I went into hair because it was like this ex accessible thing that I could do instantly. And my partner did hair. Uh, so we've been lucky enough to live together, work together, you know, be best friends, be partners, all of it. Um, but what we did with our business was quite, uh, I would say, countercultural in the way that we built it because we decided to intentionally be ourselves because we figured that if we existed in this town, there were others like us that existed in this town. Mm. And so the big things that you're not supposed to talk about when you're behind the chair are religion and politics. And I just fail miserably at both <laughs> <laughs> um, because like I'm an organizer at heart. So um, I'm either organizing around political issues, organizing around social issues or building conversations about religious, uh, you know, issues at the time. So it really is for me, everything in my life um, is, is unified. I don't know how to do truncated. I just don't do it well. Uh, if I do something, I do it all the way, you know, and that's kind of what it's all meshes together for me. And so when I'm behind the chair, I'm getting to have these conversations about intersectionality. I'm getting to have these conversations about religion. I'm getting to have these conversations about local politics, uh, civic engagement, all of that. And so I'm able to use the influence that I'm blessed to have in people's lives to facilitate conversations and no, no pun intended, right, right. <laughs> but, um, and, and but, so are the people, are, the, are your clients, are the people from the community there? Do they, do, do you find that they open up? Are they vulnerable in, in that, in that way that you can, you can say, you know, Oh, I, you know, I, I understand, you know, how maybe somebody who isn't necessarily living the life as much as, as, as you are might, might feel about, you know, people who are different from them in town, concerns that they might have about folks that they don't know as well. Oh, yeah. They, it's absolutely like the most open and honest dialogue space ever. And usually what we find is uh, my wife, myself, and then one of our best friends, Tracy, works at the shop. And frequently we do what's called styling in the round. And so we end up actually turning all of our guests to face each other and we face each other. And then there's this three-way discussion happening about whatever is happening in town, whatever's happening in the news, uh, whatever's happening in conversations, because people here tend to watch it um, a lot. And so we have have had some really interesting and honest conversations and it's been nothing short of phenomenal. I mean, there's been times where we'll have so many trans people in the room that my wife is the only cisgendered person in the room in a town of 13,000. We'll have, you know, six other trans people in the room other than myself. Mm. Um, we will have all we have. We do like we just do hair, all types of hair. And so people will frequently come to us because they're like, oh, like most white people can't do my black daughter's hair or something. So we tend to get we just tend to draw in a very racially diverse uh 
group of people into our salon. And what I found is that by the attitude that we've put out about being active, like we will sponsor protests. We will wear our shirts to BLM marches in our town. Like we will do that intentionally, not because we want to advertise for our business, but because we want people to know that this is a safe place to come as a little bit of a shelter from whatever you might be dealing with in our area. And so though we are a salon, we end up functioning as a de facto community center, which I absolutely love because it it creates an interface for much needed conversation in our area. And what I've found is, at least with the people that come to us, there are more people that want to be and do and believe different, but they just don't have that inroad. Mm. And so the fact that I can be me and super queer and swear a lot and have a lot of tattoos and be intersectional within my own person, it creates a safe space for them to ask questions and to figure out how to engage and even to just learn what intersectionality means. Yeah, I, I really am enjoying hearing from both you and Tanisa how you're just b bringing your, your, the fullness of yourselves to the work that you're doing in, in very different contexts, but, it, but still that authentic being honest with yourself about what it is that, it, the, the truth that you're standing in, I guess, is, the, is, is a way to say it. So I, I guess I want to hear um, from each of you, Tanisa, uh, we can start with you. What, what are some of the, the lessons that, that you feel like you've learned about, about building these, these authentic partnerships, these cross-cultural uh, interreligious partnerships, um, in, particularly in a rural space that you're operating in? Yeah, I mean, the beauty of the work is there are really amazing people across the state who believe in social justice issues, who want to build an equitable and anti-racist state. They just don't know how, mm -hmm. right? And so what we recognize is that there might be two people in Aberdeen and three people in Huron and these, I mean, our state is geographically huge, right? Just like New York. Um, and it takes three hours to get to our state capital and there might be pockets of 700 people here, 500 people here, right? right, right. So what we, what we realize is we need to build social justice communities around mm -hmm. the state mm -hmm. um, so that when an, an action needs to be taken, that they come together and feel like they aren't one of two people in their community, right? Mm -hmm. Now they're part of a community of 50 that went through this training program together and they can lean on each other to take action together. And so we started that work a couple of years ago and we launched our Cohorts for Courage program. And our first group um, were Christian clergy. And we brought together 26 um, people, Christian faith leaders across the state into one cohort. And they learned about Islamophobia. They learned about bigotry. They learned about why this exists and what's happening in South Dakota and then how they can take action around it. How to write press releases, how to organize a protest, how to write op-eds, like really tangible action items. So so they knew exactly what needed to be done, because I think what happens is there's this moment of like intense passion where like we got to do something and then you don't know what to do and then it's done. Right. Yeah. Like you have to like do it in the moment. So we're hoping by putting these cohorts together across the state that we'll start seeing more action. And we already have. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, on the west side of our state, um, 
in Rapid City, one of the Lutheran pastors who was in our cohort started an interfaith justice collective, and they had never had one before, as far as I know. Um, and he started doing that work. Um, South Dakota has been really well known for being open for business through this pandemic. We've had no mitigation measures from our governor to um, pretty much to our local level. Um, so we had a group of our cohorts uh, clergy come together and ask for a mask mandate and lobbied at our city council to do so. I mean, these types of actions we haven't seen from faith leaders, right? They don't want to get involved, as you said, Leo, with politics. Yep. Um, but we're starting to make them understand, look, what may be politics for you is actually an everyday thing for me. Right. So it might be political to like stand up against Islamophobia for you, but it's actually fear that my community has. It's actually the little girl at school who's getting her hijab pulled off. Mm -hmm. Right. This is not politics. It's about equity and civil rights and justice. Mm -hmm. Um, So getting getting our communities to move through there. So the next court we had were K through 12 educators. Right. And we also had a, a youth advocate summer program. So we'll continue to build these smaller cohorts of community to take action together mm-hmm. um, and give them the skills and tools so they know what steps they, they can take. Yeah, great. Leo, what about what about for you? Uh, lessons that you've learned? Uh, you, you shared how the salon is is a is a great meeting place, community convening space. Um, what are some of the other opportunities that you find, you know, being in a small town present? I wish you could see my face right now because I'm having this insane, emo- like thinking face moment because ultimately, <laughs> Tanisa, what you do and what I do are incredibly similar yeah. because at the heart of it all, it's building equity and safety and intersectionality for all people, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that we do that is organizing in our communities. So it kind of, it looks, you know, fairly different for both of us, but what we're doing is the same work, which is community building. And, uh, you know, as the, the theologian part of me, which I seek to be the most practical theologian ever, but the theologian part of me recognizes that faith institutions, right? They have always been community gathering points, right? And so the way, like, I think the way that the way that the church can can regain some sort of efficacy and maybe, you know, any relevance whatsoever, speaking at least for evangelicals, is to recognize the power to be a a center of coalescence for the community. Because I think that's ultimately what we have to do. And that's that's kind of what I've learned in this rural setting is it's not that there's not people, it's that they're not connected. And, um, you know, if you look at, uh, I was a part of the a public health survey group for our um, county health department, a consortium that we had a couple years ago. And we looked at the, the, let's say, the obstacles that we face in our area in terms of building public health. But I think it translates in terms of building intersectional, um, you know, activist groups, right? Is we have, when we are in a rural, when we're in a rural area, we have a lot of things stacked against us. We have built environment deficiencies. We have geographic deficiencies. Um, in my area, we, we don't, it, my whole area can't even get the internet. Like there's a large portion of my area that can't get the internet. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, drastically troubling in an 
age of COVID, right? So, you know, you see, you see um, public health outcomes and educational outcomes immediately begin to diverge between people who have and who don't. And so what we have to do is create strategies for intersectional advocacy movements, even though we might be geographically dispersed. And I, I'm really inspired to hear about your cohort work, Tanisa, because I think that's really yeah. incredibly interesting because we need to have people ready to go. And it doesn't matter if it's in, you know, a town that has a thousand people, right? Or a town that exactly. has 3,000 people, because we're the population center of our area. Terrifying. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but we have to have those people ready to go. And I honestly think that throughout COVID, one of the things that we've seen is perhaps the brilliance of digital organizing, right? Mm. And connecting on social. And I, I, I sometimes social media is the bane of modern existence. And then sometimes it's the tool by which we are able to actually activate, right? In our, in mm. our disparate places. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I've been learning is just how to build and sustain passionate people uh, because I can't do all the work, but it, my job is kind of to inspire mm -hmm. that passion in other people. And I have to figure out how to do that. Uh, and I liked, I liked your, your cohort idea and I might, I don't know how I can steal it. Cause technically I do hair. I will a, share it with you. How's that? Perfect. <laughs> I mean, I <laughs> to do on Facebook. So. Awesome. Perfect. <laughs> so each episode we hold space for, for each of our guests to, to ask each other questions of our own. And I felt we were kind of jumping into that anyway, but I, <laughs> I want to, I'm, I'm really curious to take a little bit of a step back and have the two of you ask each other things that you feel like you'd like to learn from each other's experiences. Um, Leo, do you have any questions for Tanisa? I super do. Um, and it's not <laughs> one that we touched on yet, but I actually live where I live, right in Cattaraugus County. We actually have in within our borders, uh, the only, I believe, or one of the only uh, cities, right, um, like American municipalities that also is co concurrently a Native American reservation. Oh, so we have Salamanca, New York, which is 15 minutes away from us. Um, and so Native, the Native population here is very, very large. Mm -hmm. And I think... I have to graciously admit that they've taught me things that I should have already known. Yeah. Um, but I'm so curious because I feel like as I dive further into the sort of social, socially engaged uh, practicalities that I have, which are driven by the best parts of my faith and not the worst, but the more I dive into that, I find myself um, developing a great sense of awareness of like Native American issues and things where we've fallen short. And I was kind of curious if your your activism and or your faith, how that has made you think about or engage with the Native American population mm -hmm. that you're around. Yeah, awesome question. I mean, yeah, our Native American population is the second largest population here in our state, right? Um, so it's been an amazing journey learning from them because the history of social justice is with them, right? Mm -hmm. And what has worked um, and how the continuous struggles. I mean, it's a really important reminder um, for us activists who are growing into our space right now, like things take a lot of time, right? Mm -hmm. And it might not happen for us to see. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely have amazing friends across the state doing activism work. And that intersectionality is finally happening because we mm -hmm. all, I think, 
you know, whether it be 2016 for, you know, whatever that moment was for each of us in our different spaces, like we've realized we have to come together. And so, you know, and with the work that Voices is doing, that's what we do 24 seven. Yes, we concentrate on refugee, immigrant, undocumented Muslim communities specifically, but I think because of our strategic success, Mm -hmm. people from all sectors are coming and saying, can you help us with this, this issue? Can you align on that issue? And we're now also asking, how can we help you? You know, it's not enough to be like, oh, there's another organization of color, like, hey, you know, great job. Like, you have to ask. You have to keep each other informed. You have to come with humility. You have to step back when they tell you to step back. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. The dynamic that we have um, here locally is there's a lot of great what I say, the really great white people, right? And they come to me and say, why don't you work on Native American issues? Uh And I say, because they are. (laughs) They are. And just because you don't know who they are doesn't mean it's not happening, Mm -hmm. right? It's incumbent of us to understand the stakeholders and the people who are doing the work. And aligning with them when we need alignment. And they'll say, hey, we really, you know, our governor just tried to erase all mention of indigenous history in our social studies curriculum, our K through 12. I don't know if you guys heard about that. But I mean, there's this huge uprising, like of all of us, right? And then I was asked, well, why don't you go? Why don't you, you know, do the protest? And because they're doing the protest, like, Hmm. I'll tell you who the organization is. Maybe you should ask them how you can help. Right. Right? Like that's where um, I don't know if it's over enthusiasm sometimes, but really understanding the space that we're in Mm -hmm. has been critical for our success in working intersectionality wise as well. Absolutely. I feel like there's a large amount of um, I feel like the, the Native American populations that, you know, like that I see and the people that I get to engage with on the regular, there's a large amount of hesitancy too um, for the, with either the, the white people who have been completely uninformed for so long, despite literally sharing a town, um, yeah. or the people who are, like you said, over-enthusiastic. And I feel like there's a little bit of resistance, but I think really what you said is so is so on point is that you have to build relationships. Um, and especially you have to realize that the community that's at work, the people who've already been doing the work, the people who are literally have been doing this so long that they're tired of doing it. And you need to acknowledge that work that's been done. And you, I think it, fundamentally we do all of the work that we do by building relationships. And it's no different, um, certainly in the interactions I've seen here. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the hard work, right? Yeah. Building relationships. And this community, unfortunately, keeps missing the mark with that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we've been really fortunate through the silver lining with COVID for us is that we're doing some really important work and receiving funding for it, right? Mm-hmm. So we can do more. Mm-hmm. And we've hired community engagement coordinators it's not rocket science right like you just have to invest in people and and know that it will take time you know building relationships doesn't have it happen overnight absolutely not um and you know we're the only organization who is doing multilingual vaccine education in our community Mm 
Our city's not doing it. Our county's not doing it. No one else is doing it. We, the small nonprofit, is doing it because we know our communities, right? right? Right. So now we have like healthcare systems and other health equity organizations coming and saying, how are you so successful in your work? And it's like, because you have to go to the people. Yeah. You have to actually like get in your car and go to the coffee yeah. shop that they are <laughs> hanging out in and be uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Like those spaces are uncomfortable if you're not, if that's not your personality yeah. and figure out what the needs are, right? Yeah. And don't ask them for anything. Like just no. go there and in sincere um, understanding. And yeah. I think we know how to do that. Because we're from our, all of our employees are from our communities that we, we are working to lift. Um, so that's where the investment needs to be made. Absolutely. Tanisa, do you have any questions for Leo? Yeah, I was thinking about you had mentioned you have a mosque in your community and a Muslim community there. Um, how has it been building relationships with them? Uh, they, everybody that I've been involved with has been incredibly open and warm and accepting. I've had a couple different interactions with folks like surrounding the mosque itself. Like I used to work for the newspaper in town here as a photojournalist. And I did one year for like Holy Week, right? I visited, I did a service at the mosque. I did a, I did a Passover Seder at the synagogue and I went to a Catholic mass for Easter as well. Okay. Um, and I took pictures and I just literally sat down and well, I mean, the, the, the Muslim function and the uh, Jewish function involved a meal, but I also sat down with like the Christians at their coffee hour afterwards or whatever, we, whatever they want to call it. Um, mm-hmm. But I got to engage with all three, um, with all three populations. And I have to say that um, everybody was incredibly welcoming of me into that space and incredibly um, hospitable. And for, it's been probably about 10 years since I did that. But the conversations that I had with the young Muslim women that I was talking to at the moment uh, was like a seminal moment in my life, mm-hmm. right? Because I realized what I didn't know, but they were just like happy to like talk to me and not in a demeaning way. Like they just assumed good intent on my part and it welcomed me into their like sacred space. And I think that that was that was like a fantastic moment for me. It was on the beginning of my interfaith journey. Um, and then recently with the local, like uh, with that, the local pastor and principal making the Islamophobic statements, um, I've just kind of reasserted my interest in engaging with the Muslim community because they haven't been meeting due to COVID because uh, they have a larger like aging population. But I've spoken to a couple of the young folks come to me to get their hair cut. And so we are just going to have coffee uh, this like coming week and just chat about like ways in which we can build intersectionality just like on a relational level so that we can eventually like stand up and say, yeah, this is not okay. Um, and I'm also going to facilitate a conversation with a, a, my, one of my friends, Angela, who is Muslim, um, actually probably later today or tomorrow, we're going to talk uh, about, like we're gonna just record a conversation and broadcast it about the Islamophobic statements that were made at the, mm-hmm. um, you know, on this broadcast and at the school board meeting. So I've, I've been met with nothing but like enthusiasm about intersectionality and partnership, which is a lot more than I can say for a lot of Christians, because I've realized that to be interfaith, you cannot, you cannot simply be 
uh, believe in interfaith work in the way that you can't be not racist, you have to be anti-racist. I believe mm. you have to be actively interfaith um, along those same lines of thought. And so I'm really excited for the people who are willing to kind of meet me out in that field of intentional interfaith engagement and see what we can do because so much of it just starts with conversation. Mm. And that's how we move forward together, right? Yeah, that's amazing. I'm so inspired by hearing that. And thank you for taking action around that. I mean, I think, I mean, what we've found is that there are deeper, more meaningful connections built around action mm -hmm. than there are around our traditional, like eating a meal together, yes, right? Yep. Because you're automatically coming together for the same purpose, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the action is. Right. So you're already like, there's something there's just some innate trust in that. Mm -hmm. um, and then moving together becomes a little bit easier. Yeah. Absolutely. At least that's our theory. And so far it's working. <laughs> I think it's correct because like I, I, a longstanding thing that's been an issue that I've taken with Christianity is so much of Christendom is known for what they're not about. Right. But mm -hmm. then who do you see in the streets fighting for rights, right? So I think that if Christendom was to take a nod from really anybody else <laughs> and start to be engaging in the streets for people's rights, if you just simply are about what you're about, you build mm -hmm. solidarity so much more. And I think that's that's an incredibly pertinent point about engaging around actions because you're, you're declaring your intent right there. Your intent is to show up, your intent is to be engaged, and your intent is to stand up for whatever the issue at hand is. Absolutely. Well, these are beautiful messages that I hope uh, people who are listening to this conversation will take in and and then act on as they're inspired by both of your stories. Um, as we're as we're wrapping up, I I wanted to um, invite both of you to you know share any information for folks who particularly if they're outside of your area um, might want to be involved somehow or or advice that you might have. For, for them about sort of best practices. Um, Tanisa, what do you what do you think? Yeah, so my pitch is gonna be, why should people in DC care about South Dakota, right? There you go. Um, because, you know, if you look at the electoral map and see that brick red wall in the middle of our country, right? Mm -hmm. We have to turn those purple. We have to, and that work happens with organizations like ours, um, you know, advocating for anti-racism, changing, dismantling racist policies. And once that work starts to take place here and we chip away at those, whatever the red brick wall means for you is how we're going to make progress across the country. Um, and so if you're interested in learning more about us and our work, you can go to our website, uh, just Google South Dakota Voices for Peace and on social media at SDVF peace great and uh best best thing that that people will find if they come and visit you up in south dakota what's your what's your your pitch as, as a tourism <laughs> advocate for for your state yeah i mean south dakota is beautiful um sioux falls is a, a a booming town there's a lot of great things happening here and then of course on the west side of our state we have the badlands um, you know, amazing uh, Native American reservations and history, um, as well as, you know, I'm not encouraging people to go to Mount Rushmore. However, <laughs> there is that. 
But Spearfish Canyon, that's what I'll say. Go to Spearfish Canyon if you're a hiker and love nature. Beautiful. All right. <laughs> Leah, what's what's your uh, what's your pitch for for folks working in in small towns like yourself? My pitch for folks folks working in small towns is that you're not alone. And typically, at least with what I've seen in the my history of lifelong history of living and working in rural America, much to my chagrin, um, <laughs> I got to live in the city for a while and it was very exciting. Unfortunately, it didn't last. And I'm so sad about it. But the <laughs> thing is, is that um, it, there is small town America is America. Right. Mm -hmm. And if small town America rises up and fights for justice, then America will change. And that is 100% my belief. Um, there's, a, there's a study called the LGBTQ Rural Map Survey, and it shows that there's between 2.7 and 3.9 million LGBTQ people living in rural America. And uh, that was one of the first, it wasn't even a singular study. They pulled aggregate data from other studies. But I use that as an example to say there is diversity in rural America. Mm -hmm. Rural America has just been painted as a monolith. And while I never pictured myself being a champion of rural America, like I'm here and queer in rural America. And I know that there are other people that are here and existing in their own liminal spaces in rural America. And so rural America is America. And if you mm -hmm. can rise up where you are, we can change America. You know, we had a we had a, a Black Lives Matter protest last last year here in town, and there was over 300 people present at the protest. That is more people that I've ever seen protesting any one thing in our mm -hmm. area. And to give you the comparison by demographic data, that amount of people is the same amount of people that decided our last mayoral election. Wow. So in rural America, you have a chance where you can really do some, you could do part-time organizing in rural America and swing red elections to blue, or I actually really like that idea of purple better, um, and just create some balance. Like here we are in mm -hmm. small town America, we exist as, as queer people, as Muslims, as brown people, as neurodivergent people, as differently abled people, we exist in rural America and we are America. We need to remember that and not feel so disenfranchised because like, oh, my town is small. But if we can organize and mobilize in the corners of America, we can literally we can literally move towards the aspirational idea that is America that we have yet to even come close to achieving. Great. And as unofficial ambassador for Olean uh, New York, um, well, what do we, you check out when you're in town? We have this thing um, and we have squirrels. Uh, and <laughs> we have statues of squirrels. And if you come and you go to the greater Olean area chamber of commerce, you can get a squirrel map and you can take a tour of all of the squirrels because we're one of the few places in the world where black squirrels exist. Okay. Uh, so actually for our, for our um, sort of rallying cry and our promotional material for our Black Lives Matter activities last year, um, oh, I had my son draw a, a cartoon squirrel with a shirt that said Black Lives Matter and a little sign on it. So that's like, that's our Olean protest sign right there. But um, yeah, you can come visit the squirrels anytime you want. There's also beautiful nature here. We're very close to Canada. We're very close to Salamanca, where you can um, learn a lot about the reservations there. A lot of great nature. So, And if you need a new do, where do you go? W.T. Hare, 100%. <laughs> W.T. Hare in Olean, New York. That's us, my friend. You'll get a good side of conversation and a good haircut. So Great. Can't um, beat that. Also, 
if people want to follow up RE conversations, um, right now we're just building an intersexual community digitally. Um, so it centers geographically around Olean, but our plan is to eventually be able to facilitate some sort of interfaith meeting space. Um, but that will be simultaneously broadcast digitally. So if you're interested in getting involved and joining the conversation on social media, you can go to conversationsofficial.com. You can find all of our social links on there. Um, on YouTube, we're also Conversations Official, and we're available on Apple Podcasts podcast and spotify also great well this has been great thank you so much for for spending the time for for educating us for sharing your stories um very just illuminating to hear uh the perspectives from all these different places around the country so thank you both for all the great work that you do Thanks. thank you for having us so great to meet you leo it's nice to meet you as well bye bye Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests, Leo WT and Tanisa Islam. You can join Leo for their conversations at conversationofficial.com and across social media, as well as on their own podcast, Conversations Official. And you can learn about Tanisa's work at sdvfpeace.org and southdakotavoicesforjustice.org. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. Whether you're from a teeming metropolis or a rural hamlet, we invite you to find our entire back catalog of interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. We're on social media at interfaith-ish, and you can keep writing to us about the interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.